It's been an eventful week. Uh, Pulpit Pastor Search Committee has been busy. Uh, Youth and teens have been busy. Friday night. um, Let's see, Noah Chomko. Everett, where are you, Everett? Back there. Lily and I played a new game, Monopoly Deal. Never heard of it. Lily devastated the three of us. It was stunning. Ask her about it. And I was soundly beaten by Noah in checkers. And ask Daniel, three young men who are present today attacked him on the trampoline. Ask Daniel how it went. Uh, The week of prayer and fasting, solemn assembly, I encourage you. I really trust that you'll be here this Wednesday because the Lord is pouring out bountifully his blessings. But he looks for his people to gather corporately and seek his face. So be blessed in that. And be aware of all that's coming up. This uh, car wash with Westminster is a beautiful first of its kind for us with them. But we'll be engaging more. Title of the sermon. And take your Bibles, John 18. Start with verse 36. John 18. The title is taken from the last verse, verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above, church and state. Father, bless the reading of thy word. Jesus answered, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. Yes, please stand for the reading of God's word. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release someone for you at Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? (laughs) Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, a thief. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him, And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him. It's more than just responded. It's almost a legal checkmate. 
We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard this statement, he was the more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Father, bless this reading of thy holy, inspired, God-breathed-out word. And speak to our hearts, not just of the particulars of Jesus' experience up to this point with Pilate, but also teach us of the doctrine that is assumed, subsumed here. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Beloved of the Lord, embrace the eternal truth that your rock, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, doth not ebb, but your sea. Well then, does Hebrews 13, 5 speak, Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever leave you. So that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, And considering the end of their life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yea and forever. Amen. Hmm. Well, to the text, explanation. Let's look at verses 37 through 40. Observe the incredible claim of Christ. He said, I am a king and... For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness of the truth, or to the truth. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. (laughs) How fascinating to connect that statement by Christ with John 10, where he says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. So when Christ speaks of those who are of the truth, he does not mean that they naturally know the truth, but rather that they are directed by the Spirit of God, their minds and their hearts, their thoughts and emotions have been illuminated. They have been regenerated by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, causing them to suddenly see, suddenly hear, and begin to understand what they have never before grasped. Here is the wonder of regeneration. Well, Pilate, like a man of the 22nd century, disdainfully asks, what's truth? Calvin says, we see in Pilate a disease customary among men. Though we are all aware of our ignorance, there are few willing to confess it. And the consequence is that the majority reject true doctrine. Because I now know truth, I don't need you to teach me more truth.
From this self-pride, unfortunately, arises disdain, such that a man or woman chooses not to submit to learning, but rather they claim to have sharpness, acuteness of mind, because truth is believed quite often to be a common thing accessible to all, but God declares on the contrary that his truth far exceeds the capacity of human understanding. The proud in heart will not see, but the humble in heart will be enabled to see. Do you want to see his truth? Calvin says, Yet the indignation of Pilate shows that wicked men never reject the doctrine of the gospel so spitefully as not to be somewhat moved by its efficacy, its efficiency. For Pilate did not proceed so far as to become humble and teachable, <laughs> yet was constrained to feel overwhelming inner conviction. Application. <laughs> My friend, Always, always attend to inner conviction. Never turn away from it. A divinely placed burning bush, it may well be. Well, verses 39-40, that the Jews preferred Barabbas to Christ did not happen without providence, the providence of God. And if you think about it, it would have been hideous. It would have been utterly improper for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be, for Christ to be rescued from death and thus not pay the price required by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet by his death, Christ was thrown into the deepest shame and ignominy so that upon the release of Barabbas, they crucify him between two thieves, two robbers. For he had taken upon himself the sins of the world. Taken upon himself of all which could not be expiated, satisfaction made for them in any other way. And then the glory of his resurrection on the third day revealed that his death was a glorious eternal triumph. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Well, chapter 19 begins with Pilate having Jesus scourged. Scourging, we are told, and the ancients tell us, was a brutal thing. He tied a man to a whipping block, exposing his back to the full blows. A whip of several leather thongs, each of which were loaded with pieces of bone or metal. The beating would make pulp of a man's back. Eusebius, Josephus speak of deep-seated veins and arteries, entrails and organs being exposed to sight, which leaves no wonder that very often the victim died on the whipping block, that Christ didn't, is remarkable. And though sustaining physical trauma and loss of blood was capable of dragging that cross almost all the way. Well, here in Pilate is a remarkable example <clears throat> of a trembling conscience. He acquits Christ with his mouth, acknowledging there's no guilt in him and yet inflicts punishment on him as if he were guilty. Application from verse 1 of 19. Calvin says, They who have not so much courage 
as to defend with unshaken constancy what is right, must be driven hither and thither and led to adopt opposite conflicting opinions. Let me try to put a layman's version on that. When the testing comes, whether it is minor or great, you must stand for truth and principle or you will find yourself on a fast, slippery slope down. Never, never, never rationalize. The early church was placed in a true conundrum. They were dragged before the Roman altar and there under pain of death told, confess Caesar is Lord, Caesar curios. And the vast majority said, Christos curios, Christ is Lord. And their blood was shed on the spot. But not all made the good confession. And it is not those who denied Christ who are remembered as heroic. <laughs> oh, no. They saved their necks, but forfeited their witness. And they forfeited the witness of Christ. And thus presented a tremendous difficulty to the surviving church as to what to do with those who failed at the testing hour who later wanted to come back into the fold. That's a problem. What if one of them is elected to the office of deacon or elder? That's a problem. Better to stand your ground even to martyrdom than to live with shame. This isn't our home. If he allows, if he suffers you to be martyred, <clears throat> you're instantly with Jesus forever. And would you rather deny him here and live with shame? No. Well, in mockery, the soldiers thrust a crown of thorns upon his head, causing multiple puncture wounds and head wounds bleed profusely. They mock him as king, slugging him in the face. Pilate has Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe brought out to the Jews, hoping, no doubt, that they would find some pity, some compassion on this spectacle of a destroyed physical man. He says, I find no guilt in him. Behold the man. It is a remarkable, singular declaration by Pilate, behold the man. Remarkable is the similar declaration by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And my dear friend, this is the most important question that you are facing today. Is the man Christ Jesus your mediator? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? Is Christ Jesus your Savior? To die without the mediator is to stand alone before the judgment seat of God Almighty. I plead with you, bend the knee before the man Christ Jesus as your mediator. Well, upon seeing Christ Jesus ponder what they actually saw, Isaiah 52 is helpful here. Isaiah 52 which begins the fourth servant song of the 53rd chapter, Isaiah 52, 14 and 15. Thus his appearance was marred more than any man, 
and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard they will understand. The question was not so much, who is this? The question was, is this a man? And yet we see the amazing cruelty of the Jewish nation, who are not moved to compassion by so pitiful a spectacle. Yet all this is directed by God in order to reconcile the world to himself by the death of his son. Look at the response of the Jews in verse 7, particularly the last phrase, he made himself out to be the son of God. <laughs> well, this last accusation filled Pilate with fear, we are told. And the Gospel of Luke helps us understand a bit more deeply why. Luke 27, 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Pilate is not unaware of this. Verse 9, Pilate asked Jesus, therefore, where are you from? It's as if Pilate was saying, are you even a man born on the earth, or are you a god, small g, Jesus gave no answer. Christ stood before Pilate not to plead his own cause, but to suffer condemnation. It was proper that he be condemned as he appeared in our place. Thus he made no defense. Be cautious if you are one given to often making defenses for yourself. There's just a systemic problem with that. If I'm always making defense of myself, systemically, I'm moving in a different direction than my Lord and Master and Savior. And yet the silence of Christ is harmonious with what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 13. And it's interesting in light of Jesus made no answer. 1 Timothy 6, 13. Christ Jesus testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What Calvin says, for there he maintained the faith of the gospel as far as was necessary, and his death was nothing else than the sealing of the doctrine delivered by him. Verse 10, while yet under some conviction and inner striking of conscience, nevertheless, Pilate's pride rises up to betray and deny his inner conviction. No blindness is greater than that of pride. Be careful, be careful. If you are one walking in pride, you don't know where you're going. But you think you do. Verse 11, Jesus answered, you will have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. <laughs> it's as if Christ said, you claim everything for yourself as if you did not have to render an account one day before God. But it was not without God's providence that you were made a judge. Consider then that God's heavenly throne is far higher than thy tribunal. Calvin says on this verse, and this is definitely 
worth reading. Listen carefully. It is impossible to find any admonition better fitted to repress the insolence of those who rule over others so that they may not abuse their authority. The father imagines <clears throat> that he may do what he pleases towards his children. The husband towards his wife, the master towards his servants, the prince towards his people, unless they look to God, who has determined that their authority shall be limited by a fixed rule. End quote. That's deep wisdom. If I have to boast of and proclaim and assert my authority, something is wrong, for no authority exists but of what God has established. Thus am I wielding the authority I have received as Jesus would. Well, doctrine. And here we come to a different type of sermon than you have yet heard, perhaps, from me. But last Lord's Day, we considered how the threefold offices of Christ are seen in John's Gospel. And while it was his prophetic office that was central to the Jewish leaders, they, of necessity, in order to reach a verdict of death, had to unwittingly press against his kingly office. Pilate's not going to put a man to death because he was a prophet, but he will because he said he's a king. For while this was not of great concern to them, kingship was just under the surface continuously with the people. Thus, by the providential hand of God, the Father, Christ priestly office was driven, unwittingly driven forward with violent hatred by the Jewish leaders. As that blessed Christmas hymn sings, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, peals to the heaven and sky that the apostles understood the providential hand of God even behind wayward state, wayward government, is clear from Acts 2.23, Peter's first sermon, Acts 2.23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Yes, you killed the Messiah, but it was God's plan, and he used you as the instrument to achieve a far greater good. Acts 4. O Lord, verse 24. O Lord, it is thou who madest the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, thy servant, said, and this is Psalms 2, that was part of my invocation, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise vain things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And their prayer continues, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed in the river with the Spirit, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel. And catch this to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The state, the state government always performs exactly God's purposes. 
You say sometimes they do bad things. Yes. Did they do that thwarting God? No. He's behind everything by causation or permission. Well, the central doctrine we'll consider today comes from 18 verses 36 and 7 and 19, 11. The unmistakable statement by Christ is that he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. And while Jesus clearly admits that, yeah, Pilate, you've got authority, that Rome has authority over him as a man, nevertheless, that authority was given Rome from above. In the words spoken to Nebuchadnezzar, it is heaven that rules. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows sovereignty, authority on whomever he wishes. So the doctrine which the discussion between Pilate and the Lord Christ addresses is the nature of the relationship of church and state. We're going to fly fast. This could easily be a semester-long class in seminary. It shan't be today. But we're going to fly fast and name some things that I pray will enable this church to, with wisdom and biblical astuteness, walk through the waters that are yet to come. It's considered the state or government. The scripture that was read by Scott from Genesis 9 is the earliest mention of state or governmental authority in that it prescribes capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God made he him. And this finds expression in the Mosaic law ubiquitously Turn with me to Exodus 21. Exodus 21, verse 22 through 25. Here is the classic statement of what theologians have called from centuries back, lex talon, law of the claw. Exodus 21, 22 through 5. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further injury, she shall surely be he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And it's not talking about damage done to the other man this one guy was fighting. It's talking about damage done to the unborn, now miscarried child. Jewish authorities, rabbis, understanding from time immemorial, understood this to be one of the strongest passages with regard to the sanctity of human life because they considered this passage in Exodus 21 was all about loving their neighbor who was in the womb of this woman. Huge, huge implications. Under Mosaic law, there were no prisons. Lesser crimes had restitution prescribed, while murder meant the death of the perpetrator. And Romans 13 that was read by Scott is considered the locus classicus, the central classic statement on 
the role of government or the state. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and accordingly will receive condemnation on themselves. Verse 3, for, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. That's the way it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be. This is not how it is very often. We'll cover that. But rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? <laughs> Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And then verse 4, for it is a minister of God. Pritzker is a minister of God. Biden is a minister of God. Harris is a minister of God. Trump was a minister of God. It is a minister of God to you for good. This is the divine intent. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. And then this, verse 4. It does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. You come from post-flood establishment of governing authority prescribing capital punishment to mosaic prescriptions of capital punishment to the New Testament, Romans 13, statement that the state is a minister of God with the power of capital punishment. And you've got to face the reality that when Paul writes and says, it does not bear the sword for nothing, a sword is not an instrument of rehabilitation. Contrary to the IDOC, it is an instrument of retribution, the sword in the hand of the state. Well, what is the state? The state is one of those angelic powers, because they are always behind such institutions, of this age, which is always threatened by demonization, that is, by the temptation of making itself an absolute. Imagine that. The state, a government, making itself an absolute. As Rush Dooney said, whenever a state denies God on his throne, the state will seek to sit on that throne itself. You can't leave a throne empty. Such a state will deify itself in terms of rights and powers it assumes. Yet the reality is that such a state demonizes itself. Well, a layman's version, pulling much scripture together, is that the state government exists for two things, to protect the innocent and punish the evildoer. That's it. The purpose of state is to protect the innocent and punish the evildoer. The state exists as heaven's instrument of justice, providentially deputized, placed by the Most High King of Heaven. Remember that the apostles did not write in Geneva, Switzerland. They wrote under the Roman rule of terror and martyrdom 
and they wrote this. We've got a whole lot better than they had so far. Now, what about the church? If the state is the instrument of God's justice, and that's boiling it down very tersely, if the state is the instrument of God's justice, the church is the instrument of God's grace and mercy through word and ministry. And any state that steps into the realm of grace and mercy has usurped the sphere of the church. And problems abound then. Any state that steps into the realm of grace and mercy has usurped the sphere of the church. Why wouldn't they? They've already usurped the throne that God sits on. In the preaching of the gospel, God has, by grace, gathered up sinners in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made sin and death his own. Thus he has not merely acquitted man, but for all time and eternity has set him free to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, what then is the responsibility of the state to the church? Turn to 1 Timothy 2 with me, please. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 2 instructs the church universal and particular and by clear inference implicitly instructs us as to what the church, the state is to be doing. First Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And here's their political schematic. For kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is, here we are again, one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, observe that it is only on condition that such authority as a state exists that we are enabled to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. But observe in 1 Timothy 2 the purpose of this desired peace. It's not about us. God is not here saying, I hope you have a happy life in a happy government. Be warmed and filled. No. The purpose of the church is that of the desired peace, uh, tranquil, quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. The reason this is the goal is the following verses. It's that the church might fulfill its mandate extending the gospel. The church needs freedom in the realm of men in order to exercise its function and purpose towards all men to advance the gospel. So we pray for the state that we might advance the gospel of our Lord and Savior. This is why God caused Koine Greek, the common tongue of Paul's day in the civilized world, underneath Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, with an iron fist, but the gospel was able to spread. When barbarians sack Rome, it's a little difficult spreading the gospel. You're more about survival then. 
Because this freedom of the church can only be guaranteed through the existence of the state, there is no alternative but that the church should on its side guarantee the existence of the state through its prayers. Ah, a symbiotic, virtual, reciprocal relationship. Prayer for the bearers of state authority belongs to the very existence of the church. It is not a church if it ignores this apostolic exhortation. You can't claim to be a church if that church is ignoring this apostolic instruction for how the church relates to the state. Now, think carefully, because it is a reality that the state could make use of its position to honor evil and punish good. Yeah. But this does not alter its mission, and hence it does not affect the Christian attitude towards the state. Even if the state betrays its divine calling, it will never, nevertheless be constrained to fulfill its function, to guarantee the freedom of the church, even if in a quite different way. The honor that the state owes to the church will then consist in the suffering of the followers of Christ. Thus, in one way or another, the state will still be the servant of divine providence. Observe how the state, the Roman government, fulfilled the divine purpose and foreknowledge of God by slaying the Messiah. And yet the most brutally unjust state does not lessen the church's responsibility for the state and to the state. Indeed, it can only increase it through prayer and continued faithful advancement of the gospel. For the sake of the freedom to preach the gospel, the church expects the state will be a true state and will thus create and administer justice. But the church honors the state even when this expectation is not being fulfilled. And, listen carefully, at that point the church is protecting the state from the state. It is defending the state from the state by rendering unto God the things that are God's, by obeying God rather than man through the church's intercession. It represents the only possibility of restoring the state and of saving it from ruin. I said this is a semester-long topic. It is. So we've covered much, but it's all sound biblical doctrine. Bottom line, state's purpose is to protect the innocent and punish the evildoer. That's it. But even if it corrupts its purpose, the church still is responsible to advance the gospel and pray for the state. So the question then comes, is there a time when disobedience to the state is right? Yes. Read Acts 4. Acts 4, 18 through 19. They summoned the apostles, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking. Listen carefully. If obedience to the state means disobedience to God by precept or principle, 
the Christian obeys God rather than men. Application. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Because this is probably the best biblical scriptural application that I can make. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing for that, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, for in that name let him or her glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Now here's the most simple application you can receive. 19. Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Duties are ours. Events are the Lord's. The problem for many of us is we contemplate the response to a duty and our mind runs out. Well, what will happen if? Don't go there. Duties are ours. Events, how it plays out. Events are the Lord's. Father, I pray that you'll position square upon Scripture, square upon knowledge of your sovereign providence, each man, woman, boy, and girl here. We, we face trying times, Lord. This world is changing, experiencing change, and governmental edicts and commands and instructions fly and get reversed. And, but Lord, you are the same today yesterday and forever. Give us boldness to take action, doing our duty underneath your hand without anxiety over the outcome, because duties are ours. But Lord, events are yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.